Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm And I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student at Stanford. Today, our guest is Professor Adam Cohen, a professor of chemistry, chemical biology, and physics at Harvard University. In this episode, we will talk about building stuff in your bedroom from electronics found on the street engineering proteins to sense membrane voltage, and exciting projects to sense neural activity. All this and more coming up. We're here with Professor Adam Cohen, Professor of Chemistry, Chemical Biology, and Physics at Harvard. Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Cohen. Pleasure to be here. So first, can you uh, tell us a bit about yourself and your background, where you grew up, and um, how you uh, first got into science? Sure. I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, and uh, my father's a scientist, and so I think he played some role in uh, exposing me and uh, helping me uh, become interested. And uh, my first interest came from uh, walking down the streets in New York and picking up discarded electronics, TVs, computers, microwave ovens, and lugging them home and then uh, taking them apart in my bedroom to try to figure out how they worked. And so I, I really became very fascinated by uh, machines and, and how to um, build electrical circuits uh, from a very early age. What was your parents' reactions to you um, bringing home this like old electronic equipment from the streets of New York? <laughs> um, well, they, they, as long as there wasn't too much dog pee on it, they were uh, reasonably okay. Um, I think the, I mean, the main concern was that, that I not electrocute myself or, or my sister. And so, um, you know, we, there was some basic safety regulations, but um, <laughs> they were very um, supportive and enthusiastic. Um, they got me in an oscilloscope for my bar mitzvah. I had set up my bedroom as an electronics lab, and I had shelves and shelves of components and you know my soldering station and my, my electronics station there. And then when, when I was um, in middle school, I, I took a class at Rockefeller, where my dad works, on uh, laboratory electronics, and, and that's sort of uh, what got me started. You know, this was before the days of the internet, and so it was actually hard to get information sometimes. But I, I had a great textbook called The Art of Electronics. It's uh, written by Paul Horowitz. You see it in a lot of labs. It's sort of the silver Bible of electronics. And so I read that um, just uh, over weekends and then used that as a source of inspiration for trying to build things. Wow. Very cool. Yeah. And so actually, one of my first projects um, was an electrophysiology project. I built a um, electrocardiogram machine, uh -huh. uh, so something where I taped a, an aluminum foil um, electrode over my heart and another one um, over over my bicep, and then hooked it up to the amplifier from an old tape player. So I replaced the tape player uh, pickup coil with these electrodes, and then could hear over the audio the electrical waves from my heart beating, or, or and, and if I flexed my muscles from, from the muscles uh, activating. Well, wow. how old how old were you when you did that? Twelve. <laughs> the passion for tinkering uh, started early, and I guess yeah. guides you. You know, your current uh, science is really cool because it uh, basically does the same thing with genes, which we'll get oh, to. That's right. I mean, it, it, in in some sense, of course, I this is sort of retrospective history, but but there, there is a thread which has carried all the way through. Right. Yeah. Right. So related to that, um, you won the high school Westinghouse talent search by building a scanning tunneling microscope in your bedroom. So what was your thought process <laughs> in this project? How did you even assemble the parts, including, I'm guessing you need vacuum for 
for building such a thing, right? And what is a scanning tattling microscope? So it's a microscope that is used for imaging surfaces with extremely high resolution. Uh, it can get to atomic resolution, so you can resolve every atom on the surface of, say, a piece of graphite or a piece of metal. Wow. It works as follows. You take a metal wire and cut it at an angle so that it makes a very sharp tip. And if you do it right and you sort of get lucky, on this wire there will be one atom which sticks out a little bit more than all the other atoms. And so then if you take this wire and you bring it up to a surface and you bring the end of the wire within a fraction of a nanometer of the surface, the surface has to be electrically conducting, and you apply a small voltage, less than a volt, between the wire and the surface, electrons can quantum mechanically tunnel from the wire to the surface. So you get a tiny electric current. It's like, you know, if you jam the wire in, you get contact and you get a big current. If you pull it off, you get no current. And in that transition region, there's this really tiny current. And that current is super sensitive to the distance between the wire and the sample. If it gets a little bit further away, the current goes down. If it gets closer, the current goes up. So then you apply this voltage and you measure the current. And then you just scan the wire in a raster over the surface, and you plot the current as a function of the location of the wire. And that then gives you a map of the topography of the surface. The way it's actually done, usually more practically, is that you there's a feedback loop so that you adjust the height of the wire to maintain a constant current as you're going over the surface. If you don't do that, if you just keep it at constant height, there's a danger that, that you crash into the surface uh, if it, you know, it's a bump. And so doing this con this feedback keeps your constant distance from the surface. And so it's really it's really like feeling the shape of the surface. You you make that plot and then you, you can see the atoms on the surface. Now my, my device never got to atomic resolution, so I could never see the atoms, but um, it is possible with that technology. And so because it's low voltages, you, you can do this with relatively simple electronics. So so this is the amazing thing is that a scanning tunneling microscope can operate under ambient conditions. And so you can do it at room temperature and atmospheric pressure. It's different from a scanning electron microscope or a transmission electron microscope, both of which require high voltage supplies and vacuum. But the scanning tunneling microscope, the STM, um, doesn't require high voltage and doesn't require vacuum. And so it's actually accessible to, uh, to anybody. And now you can find on the internet instruction uh, sets on how to, uh, Assemble how, to build, how to build your own STM at home uh, if, you're, if you're so inclined. At the time that I did it, it was a little bit more challenging again. Because, I mean, it hadn't really been done that way before, to, to my knowledge. I was visiting Princeton, and I saw one of these machines in operation there. And the machine's only about the size of a shoebox. And so I thought to myself, well, it's so small. How can it be? There can't be anything too complicated in there. Yeah. Uh -huh. And the, the main challenge with these is that they're super sensitive to vibrations. Because if that little wire vibrates by more than an atomic diameter, you, you get a lot of noise. So, you know, if you think about doing patch clamp electrophysiology and you think that requires precise positioning, you know, there it's only on the scale of the cell, but here it really has to be on the scale of individual atoms. And so the, the microscope, the one I saw, was being hung from a tripod by bungee cords to isolate it from any vibrations in the building. And so um, the one that I built had a, it was built out of Legos um, as the sort of mechanical structure. And then, <laughs> That's um, very cool. And then one day when my parents weren't home, I, I drilled a hole in our ceiling <laughs> and then hung it from bungee cords so that uh, it would be isolated from the building vibrations. And then I used a whole bunch of biology textbooks as, as the mass ballast 
uh, <laughs> in order to give it a very low resonant frequency to decouple it from the building. So unfortunately, when I was in high school, that was the only thing I ever did with those biology textbooks. It's <laughs> full um, for, for their heavy mass. Wow. Very cool. And so continuing with your sort of education, you came to Stanford for your PhD and worked with W.E. Warner in trapping and manipulating individual molecules. So what was it like working in his lab? What did you enjoy most? And maybe why did you choose his lab to join? So that was actually my second PhD. So I did a first one at Cambridge in the UK in theoretical physics. And then I started at Stanford. And uh, well, the, the reason I initially talked to him is actually that a friend of mine was working in his lab. My college roommate had gone to Stanford a couple years ahead of me and, and was there and said it was a great lab and, and you know they were doing interesting stuff and that I should go and talk to them. So, um, so I did that. And uh, indeed, that, that was correct. And uh, yeah, so I, so I had a great time in WE's lab. So before I had started at Stanford, I had this idea that I wanted to build this machine to trap single molecules. And I had gone around and talked to a bunch of different professors when, when I started at Stanford. And WE was the only one who said, oh, that sounds like a fun idea. You know, I'd be happy to have you do that in my lab. And so, so that's how I ended up joining his lab. And it was, a, it was a great choice. WE was a fantastic mentor and advisor. Uh, for me. Sort of rewinding just one step. You went from theoretical physics to now sort of single molecule manipulation. What was the thought process there? Yeah. And why a second PhD? That's really yeah. interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this isn't something I would advise anybody <laughs> uh, to do. There, there's no great reason uh, to do that. It happened to be sort of an accident of the circumstances for me. I was always interested in experimental things. Uh, building things. Yeah. And after I graduated college, when I was living in England, sort of the way the circumstances were working on these theoretical projects, you know, for a variety of complicated reasons, I really wanted to do experimental work. And so after having been in the UK for a few years, I applied to grad school. And I actually didn't know whether or not I was going to get a PhD from Cambridge. And so then during my first semester at Stanford, I went back to the UK over Thanksgiving, I think, and defended my thesis there and then came back to Stanford. And so then I was in this weird position of being a first year grad student at Stanford, but all of a sudden having a PhD. But I decided just to keep going. I think being a grad student is pretty much as good as it gets. And <laughs> so <laughs> I figured that I might as well, might as well enjoy it uh, as long as I could. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Jumping ahead now, we're going to go into uh, your lab. You um, started your group and you work at Harvard in the chemical biology and chemistry department and are doing some really cool stuff in developing tools for neuroscience. So uh, what, what got you into the, the questions of helping neuroscience and engineering tools? Yeah, so when I started, I was really very naive about neuroscience. I, I was sort of innocent of any neuroscience knowledge. And my lab had been doing some basic biophysical studies on these rhodopsin proteins that we ended up working And we're actually trying to do a single molecule fluorescence experiment, sort of as a follow-on to some of my uh, work I had done in my PhD at Stanford. And, and we worked on that for two years, and it ended up basically being a failure. We, we never got to single molecule resolution. And the challenge was that the amount of light that we had to shine on these molecules in order to get some signal was so much that we were basically frying the molecules. And so after two years of this, we had built up all this infrastructure and I had learned a lot about these proteins, but we really didn't have very much to show. And I was trying to think of what 
we could do that might sort of salvage this effort. And yeah. I was dimly aware that there was this need in neuroscience for tools to visualize electrical activity in neurons. And so sort of on almost on a whim, I thought, well, maybe we can find a way to use these proteins to help with that goal. And there, there was a particular fact that, we had lo- that I had learned about the proteins, which made me think this was plausible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So here's the fact. So the protein that we were working with are these transmembrane proteins, and they work as light-powered proton pumps. So they absorb photons of sunlight, and they use that energy to move a proton, to move a charge, from inside the cell to outside the cell. And that builds up a membrane voltage, which in their native host, which are these microorganisms that live in the ocean, uh, that membrane voltage then powers the ATP synthase that these creatures use to power their metabolism. And so because the, the protons, after they get pumped out, they come back through the ATP synthase, they turn the turbine, and, and this thing makes uh, ATP from the ATP and phosphate. And so you can think of these proteins like the world's smallest photovoltaic device. Light comes in and a voltage comes out. And so the fact that I learned, which was widely known among people who knew, was that as these protons moved through the protein, so you can think of this proton sort of jumping from one amino acid to another as it goes through the core of the protein. The color of the proteins undergoes these dramatic shifts. So uh, depending upon exactly where that proton is, the electrostatic environment around the chromophore changes, and these things change color all the way back and forth across the visible spectrum. And so, so people had been using that fact to study the function of these proteins for decades. So the idea is you flash the protein with a flash of light, and then as this proton starts to sort of make its way through, you can take absorption spectra. You can look at the color, and you can see the see sort of where the proton is at different times, and you can use that to learn about how this protein is working. And this isn't fluorescence. This is just the protein is literally changing color in, like, visible light. Absorption. Absorption, absorption. right. Yeah. And, and this, this has been known since the 1970s. And so the thought that I had was that this directional motion of the proton is coupled to these color changes. Now, if the proton is charged, and so if you have a voltage across the membrane, and if you change that voltage, you ought to be able to pull on that proton, sort of to tilt its energy landscape, either pulling it toward the outside of the cell or pulling it toward the inside of the cell, depending upon which way the voltage is. And so perhaps that could reposition that proton, because the electric field gives you a grip on it. And so maybe move that proton back and forth between different parts of the protein and induce these color shifts, which people had been studying for such a long time. And so I thought that it might work as a sort of electrochromic reporter, changing color in response to changes in membrane voltage. But but that that's absorption. That's not fluorescence. Right. Yeah. And the dogma in the field was that these proteins are entirely non-fluorescent. And people had measured them various times over the over the decades and found sort of this tiny, tiny amount of, pro- of fluorescence, which was basically undetectable. And so because of that, we, never, we didn't look for fluorescence. We were trying to come up with much more complicated measurement schemes. And in the course of doing a much more complex measurement, there was this sort of spectrally very broad background, which wouldn't go away. And so 
we did everything we could. I thought it was room light leakage or you know some problem in our instrument, and we could never get it to go away. And eventually, we realized that these proteins are actually a little bit fluorescent, and with modern detectors and modern sensors, that's enough to actually get a decent signal out of the protein. And the fluorescence turns out to be sensitive to the voltage. And so the the voltage, uh, basically, once the voltage gets great enough, it manipulates the um, distance that the proton goes kind of through the channel. And so you're able to use that as a, as a way to change the color of the channel protein and eventually affect its fluorescence? That's right. So eventually we figured out what the voltage is actually doing through the proton to the best of our, I mean, we have the model now. And there's basically two different places where this proton can sit. And the voltage tilts the relative energy balance between those two spots. And so the proton either goes to the left or goes to the right, and depending upon where it sits, and the protein has two different absorption spectra. Then we illuminate it with a laser of a single wavelength. One of these states absorbs our laser, and then and so it fluoresces. The other state is, doesn't absorb. And so, so that's how we convert these changes in absorption into changes in, in fluorescence. Very cool. And so you published a paper in 2012 describing this voltage sensor, which is based on... Um, Archaea rhodopsin 3, and it, uh, it is detecting fluorescence with red light or, or far red? That's right. We Which excite one? it with red light, and the fluorescence emission is in the near-infrared part of the spectrum. Right. And so this wasn't the very first voltage sensor out there. So what were the other voltage sensors, and how did this improve upon what was in the field at that time? Yeah. It's, it's a great question. So the idea of sensing voltages is, as you say, not new, uh, sensing it optically. People have been working on this since the late 1960s. And um, there are two approaches people have taken. The first approach, starting in the 60s, was to try to develop dyes, so organic molecules that you could put into a membrane that would um, give a change in fluorescence in response to a change of voltage. The challenges with the dyes have been uh, that... Um, Traditionally, the signals have been very, very small, so it's just tiny changes in fluorescence. There have been some recent improvements which have made them quite a bit better. Uh, that was one issue. The other was that toxicity had been a big problem, so either just direct toxicity of the dye or when you shine light on it, it would generate photo degradation products which were uh, toxic. And then the third challenge with the dyes has been that, at least in the brain, if you, if you add them, sort of, th they go everywhere. And so you end up looking at this almost impenetrable tangle. And so it's very hard to sort out the individual cells. If you have a protein-based reporter, then you can genetically target it by controlling which promoters you use to specific cells or specific cell types. And so that gives you much better um, targeting ability. So then starting, now I'm not going to get the year exactly right, I think around 2000 or maybe the late 90s, there was the idea that maybe we could make protein-based voltage indicators. And the strategy people had been following was to take some um, voltage-sensitive protein, like an ion channel or, or other transmembrane protein, and then to rig up um, conventional fluorescent proteins to it and to either use FRET, so fluorescent resonance energy transfer, or, or some other sort of environmental sensitivity of these proteins to try to convert the voltage-induced uh, motions in the, in the transmembrane domain into changes in the fluorescence signal. And uh, there's been a lot of progress on those two, and they, they keep getting better. The challenges there had been 
that there was this trade-off. Either the signals were very small or the responses were quite slow. And, you know, an action potential, when a neuron fires, that electrical impulse only lasts about one one thousandth of a second. Right. And so having something that takes hundreds of milliseconds to respond means you just can't see these. And ultimately, I think that the speed challenge came from the fact that the changes in signal and fluorescence were coming from these big motions of these big pro- proteins. And that's just a relatively slow thing. For the rhodopsin-based reporters, the signal comes from motion of a single proton. And so protons can, are, are super speedy. And so it can adjust quickly. And so it turned out, I mean, this is really just by good luck, that the proteins that we developed had bigger sensitivity than anything else that had been developed and were very, very fast. They responded in much less than a millisecond. And again, just by good luck, because they were excited by red light and emitted in the near infrared, those are convenient wavelengths for imaging in the brain because there's less autofluorescence in the tissue and the light penetrates better. But the proteins we developed did have one crucial flaw, which uh, has continued to be a challenge, which is that they're very, very dim. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so the fluorescence quantum yield, so that's sort of the efficiency that they produce fluorescence, is quite low. And so we have to put in a lot of laser light and use very sensitive detectors to get a signal. And so for applying them in tissue and in live animals, there's a concern, uh, which we're sort of working on mitigating now, about whether the amount of laser light we're putting in is going to heat the tissue and create damage because of that. Yeah, but this was, I mean, being able to sense um, individual action potentials reliably, I mean, that's a huge fundamental step forward. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that, that, that was, um, at least for cultured neurons, for, and you know, for neurons in a dish, it really let us do that pretty robustly. Yeah, yeah. So that's pretty, pretty great. And one, one, I should just say, one of the neat things about the fact that it's so far to the red is that you can then pair it with other protein-based tools that use other parts of the spectrum. Right. So, for instance, you can pair it with a calcium indicator yeah. um, based on GFP, and you can do calcium and voltage imaging at the same time. Uh-huh. Or you can pair it with a light-gated ion channel, like a channel rhodopsin, so you can optically stimulate and optically record from the same cell. Yeah. So that was uh, another really cool paper your lab published where you um, just combined this arch voltage sensing with channel rhodops and were able to basically patch a cell totally optically uh, without any electrophysiology. So it's, yeah. it's a cool you know, a step forward into hopefully being able to uh, replace as much as we can of what is currently done by more painstaking electrophysiology processes with um, optical imaging. Yeah, and I think the, the, these optical technologies shouldn't really be seen as a replacement for patch clamp because there's some things that patch clamp is and probably will remain the gold standard for. So for absolute accuracy and for the voltage clamp experiments where you set the voltage and then you apply steps in it and you measure the currents, it's going to be very hard to beat um, patch clamp because that really gives you very excellent quantitative information. But if you're interested in spatially resolved effects with light, both with the stimulus and the imaging, you you can map it to different parts of the sample. So if you have some complex neural circuit, Mm -hmm. you can tickle it with blue light just in one place, and then you can watch that impulse propagate through the cells and from one cell to another and see how it spreads through the circuit. And those are things that really haven't been possible to do by other means. Right. Just the sheer um, number of simultaneous imaging you can do. Um, just seems to be much greater with this. Although, as you mentioned, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look like, for all questions, electrophysiology is becoming obsolete anytime in the near future. 
So then you published further paper in which you improved on Archer's vulture sensing on terming the new versions, quasars. And then recently oh, yeah. you used quasars to allow you to detect voltage differences using a variety of colors by using a technique called electrochromic fret. Yeah. So why is it important to have many different colors for voltage detection? And what's electrochromic fret? How does that work? Great. So as I mentioned, the challenge working with these rhodopsins is that their fluorescence is super dim. And starting back in 2010, I was thinking about how to make them brighter. Mm -hmm. And so one idea is that if you attach a conventional fluorescent protein, so GFP or, or one of its variants, yeah. to the rhodopsin, then when you optically excite that fluorescent protein, yeah. it can either give you back fluorescence or it can transfer its energy to the um, rhodopsin itself. And so the rhodopsin can quench the fluorescence of the, of the appended fluorescent protein through, through fluorescence resonance energy transfer. Now, this quenching, the efficiency of the quenching process depends on how well the emission of the conventional fluorescent protein overlaps with the absorption of the rhodopsin. You have to match the, the wavelengths in order for this process to occur. Now, I mentioned that the, the fundamental effect of the voltage on the rhodopsin is a change in the absorption spectrum. And so when the voltage changes the absorption spectrum of the rhodopsin, that then changes the degree to which it spectrally overlaps with the emission of the fluorescent protein. And so that then changes the efficiency of this quenching. And so we call this electrochromic fret because the, the electrochromic part is that the voltage is changing the absorption spectrum of the rhodopsin, uh -huh. which is then changing the efficiency of this fret from the fluorescent protein. So, so that's the sort of Rube Goldberg sequence of events which, which makes this um, thing work. And so what it, the, the primary thing that this gets you is now you're working with a conventional fluorescent protein, which can be much brighter right. than the rhodopsins. And fluorescent proteins can be many different colors, and so, so you, you can sort of pick your color. Yeah. And it still has similar speed to the rhodopsin-based sensors. You take a hit in sensitivity because it's now this indirect measurement. The sensitivity is not as good, yeah. um, but you, get, you, you gain in brightness. And so by having different colors, you can start to think about, for instance, looking at different subpopulations of neurons at the same time, maybe. Where, where you can look at excitatory and inhibitory neurons and resolve their activity at the same time, or again, combine with other fluorescent reporters of other parameters. And so my experience has been that this approach, I, I still favor the direct rhodopsin fluorescence. I think because of its larger sort of sensitivity, um, it has a lot of, of merits, but uh, other people have followed up on this approach. And so for instance, Mark Schnitzer's lab at Stanford um, has uh, used this approach and they recently had a paper where, where they applied this in uh, live mice in, in vivo. And so, so it does certainly have some promise. Cool. And what's the um, change in uh, fluorescence like for GFP due to this electrochromic fret? So I know calcium yeah. imaging, they talk about the delta F over F. So how, how yeah. does this compare? Yeah, it depends very much on the details of which construct you're talking about. It's in the ballpark of low tens of percent per 100 millivolts of voltage. Whereas uh, for the direct fluorescence of the uh, rhodopsin, it's about 90% per 100 millivolts of voltage. 
both of these pale in comparison to what you can get with the GCAP calcium indicators, which are many-fold changes in fluorescence. And we would love to have that, prepared, but we're not there yet. So now what are the like major challenges going forward to improve okay. yeah. as much as you can uh, yeah. and care to talk about? Yeah, sure. And well, improve I mean, on the technologies. In a sense, the challenges are obvious. We need them to be brighter, more sensitive, faster. Uh, having more colors would be nice. Getting them to traffic more efficiently to the plasma membrane is very important. And, and this is, I think, an underappreciated challenge. The issue is that if the protein is inside the cell, it doesn't feel the voltage. The voltage is only in the cell membrane. Right. And so internal protein gives you fluorescence, but no, no signal. So it's, sort of, you know, it's only background. And so having efficient trafficking is very important. And then you know, the next sort of frontier is to figure out how to do this imaging in intact tissue. So the brain is a strongly scattering environment. It's mm -hmm. you know, milky white. And so seeing neurons in this environment is very challenging. Mm -hmm. For calcium imaging, people have had great success using two-photon microscopy. But my personal bias is that I think it will be challenging to uh, simply adopt those two-photon microscopy techniques to voltage imaging. And the reason is that the signals for the voltage imaging are so much faster, they're 100 times faster, and they're localized to the cell membrane, and so you have many fewer molecules. And so these things will make it much harder to uh, just use those same technologies to do sort of wide-field voltage imaging in vivo. Gotcha. So we have to come up with new optical tricks. Gotcha. Are you looking also at different sort of archaea and cyanobacteria, or...? Yeah, that, that's a great question. You know, there's more than 5,000 variants of these proteins known in the wild. Right. And in my lab, we've looked at three, and we picked the best of three. And so the mm -hmm. odds that that's actually anywhere close to sort of the optimum yeah. are, are infinitesimal, right? We can't possibly have gotten so lucky. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sure there's much better stuff out there. Mm -hmm. And I know that other labs have been exploring natural diversity. And I think that's a very worthwhile thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're trying to improve these proteins, there's two approaches people take. So some people explore natural diversity. The other approach is you take a protein and then you mutate it and you sort of try to sculpt that protein to, to make it better. We've taken the latter approach. I have no idea if that was the right choice or not. But once we've gone down this road, now this protein we have has improved a lot. And so that sort of raised the bar for proteins from other species. But I wouldn't be the slightest bit surprised if people come out with other proteins from other species that, that work better than the ones that we've developed. And just going back to the current abilities of these proteins to sense voltage, are, are you um, able to detect sub-threshold events, so not action potentials like EPSPs, IPSPs with um, arch sensing? So it's a good question. So of course, voltage does a lot more than just spikes. There's all this sub-threshold dynamics. Yeah. And yes, the fluorescence of the protein is a roughly linear function of voltage over the physiological range. Mm -hmm. And the sensitivity is such that you can detect in cultured neurons voltage changes of just a few millivolts in a one millisecond interval. And so you can see EPSPs and IPSPs. If you're working in brain slice or in vivo, the sensitivity is a little bit lower. There's more background noise. Uh, but we can still see EPSPs and IPSPs in vivo. We haven't had the sensitivity to see minis, so to see single mm -hmm. uh, uh, vesicle releases. Uh, th those are a little bit below our, our detection threshold right now. Gotcha. But that's really cool that you can even see, um, you know, these some of these sub-threshold events. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that will be important for circuit mapping because it will let you stimulate a presynaptic cell and then see the postsynaptic response, even if it doesn't lead to an action potential. Yeah. So with that, can you give us a preview of your talk? Okay, well, I, I just did give you a lot of the... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell the story of the genesis of these proteins and how, how we uh, uh, discovered them and what we know about how they work. And then I'll give a series of stories about how we've been applying them in different areas. So we've developed these tools for optical electrophysiology where we can stimulate and record in arbitrary patterns of space and time. Mm -hmm. So we have about a million inputs and a million outputs, and so we can really do complex patterns of stimulation and recording. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about some applications mapping action potential propagation with very high time resolution in, in cells, mm -hmm. up to 100,000 frames a second. And then I'll talk about some applications in human-derived neurons. So the, these are neurons derived from human-induced pluripotent stem cells. And the uh, opportunity here is to compare neurons derived from healthy people with neurons derived from people with genetically-based diseases of the nervous system. Yeah. And so I'll tell a, a sort of case study related to ALS, so a neurodegenerative disease of, that affects motor neurons, and how we see differences in firing patterns associated with the disease and how this can tell us something about mechanisms um, of the disease. And then I'll talk about our uh, ongoing uh, efforts to apply these tools in intact tissue, so in brain slice, and in live animals, in uh, mouse uh, brains. Yeah. And then at the end, I think I'll talk a little bit about unconventional electrophysiology. So, you know, membranes are found throughout life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And while we traditionally think about electrophysiology as being important for the heart and the brain, it turns out that there's interesting electrical dynamics in lots of membrane-bound structures that have just been inaccessible to conventional patch clamp uh, techniques. Yeah. Huh. So for instance, it turns out bacteria generate electrical spikes. And oh. the world of bacterial electrophysiology is almost completely unexplored. Right. And so right. there's a whole set of interesting things to explore there. There's interesting questions in plants and fungi and in many different cell types in the human body, in immune cells and so on. And so I'll talk a little bit about some of the possibilities there. Very cool, very cool. Very cool. We're very excited um, to Thank you. hear I'm your Thank you. I'm excited talk. too. Mm -hmm. Thanks. So our last portion of the interview is sort of this fun, lighthearted way to end it, which is with three rapid-fire questions. So you can just uh -oh. um, answer uh, <laughs> the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh -huh. um, so given unlimited resources and time, what other scientific questions would you pursue? Nuclear fusion. Great, quick, and clearly well you thought ahead of time answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I'll, I'll tell you, my, when I was, um, before I had tenure, my plan was always that if I, if I got, was lucky enough to get tenure, uh -huh. uh, then I would go off and work on tabletop nuclear fusion, because I think that's one of the most important and interesting uh, challenges there is. Now that I have tenure, I, I, somehow I've gotten into this neuroscience area, and, and I'm going to keep <laughs> doing that for a while. Uh, <laughs> Too. But, but someday I do dream of going and working on uh, nuclear fusion. <laughs> cool. Okay, second one. Favorite place at Stanford or in Palo Alto? Oh, um, uh, it's the, the tree house, the burritos, uh, the, the, mm -hmm. the veggie burrito. Oh, so that's not a place, that's a food. But I lived on those burritos for a few years, and you, you can't get nearly as delicious burritos out here in uh, Boston. <laughs> yeah. And then if not science, what would you be doing now? Oh, I'd like to be a park ranger to uh, go out and, uh, I don't know, spend a lot of time outdoors and 
taken care of hanging out in, in, in the wilderness. I think that would be a lot of fun. That does sound great. Yeah. Mother Nature is very inspiring. <laughs> uh-huh. mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. This is really thank great. You. And um, <laughs> thanks for being part of the conversation. We can't wait to hear your seminar when you come to Stanford. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yee, Luis Giam, Eddie Auburn, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorokin, and myself, David Lipton. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm Louise Peterson.